Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome a familiar voice back to the program. That would be Ethan Brown. He is a a contributor for Young Voices. And Ethan, you also wear a couple of other hats. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I am the founder and host of The Sweaty Penguin, which is a comedy climate program presented by PBS's climate initiative, Peril and Promise. We're working to make climate change less overwhelming, less politicized and more fun. Well, and you have a wonderful article that uh, that goes hand in hand with this topic. And now that you mention it, the, the article's titled The Doomsday Clock is a Terrible Metaphor for Climate Change. But man, I'll tell you, when you bring up the doomsday clock, I can recall that going back to, you know, probably, I don't know, early junior high. Um, oh, it's two minutes to midnight. You know, the, the world is, is doomed at midnight. And I guess I wasn't aware that now that that is being applied to to climate change. Tell me about who some of the people are uh, applying that metaphor to to climate change. Well, the doomsday clock was developed in 1947 by atomic scientists. And at that point, it was uh, just a metaphor to raise awareness about the dangers of nuclear weapons. And I'm not a nuclear weapons expert by any means. All I know is that these scientists are unveiling this clock and not going into underground bunkers right now. But in terms of climate, it became integrated around 2007. And there's a few other topics that have been integrated, some things related to biotech. But I felt that the climate link just doesn't make a lot of sense. And we can get into it. I think climate change and nuclear weapons are just too different to go under the same umbrella. Okay. No, I think uh, fair enough. And, and of course, the tensions with nuclear weapons come and go. Um, climate change, on the other hand, um, I, and I'd, I'd love to get your take on this, it's is something that's always ongoing in some form, correct? Yeah. Climate change is a more gradual process than if a nuclear war <laughs> just happened. Um, And it's not something that is like a don't look up as comet hitting the earth and everyone dies all at once, right? We see changes to temperature and precipitation and extreme weather across a variety of regions around the world affecting everyone in different ways. And I think to say 90 seconds to midnight. Again, this year's announcement was more about the escalating conflict in Russia and Ukraine, but a lot of headlines have mentioned the climate link. Their press release mentioned uh, some concerns about climate change. And to say 90 seconds to midnight related to climate, yes, we're not in great shape on climate, but we also... First off, climate change is already here. So to say 90 seconds to midnight implies that it's not, which is weird. But then also it implies that there's some doomsday event that will happen, which also is not true. But boy, when we're uh, when we're scared, it seems like it's a lot easier to steer us in one direction or another. And uh, it kind of makes me wonder if there aren't people who understand that and want to use that, you know, to to their advantage in terms of whatever their agenda might be. 
It's tricky. There are studies that show that emotions of fear and guilt will lead people to disengage with a cause rather than engage with it. And a large part of why I feel so passionately about the work I do, 69% of Gen Z says that they feel anxious after viewing social media content about climate change. And maybe there's a little bit of reason to it, but it shouldn't be to that degree, maybe. And I think that if people are disengaging because they're just too overwhelmed, then we don't really get anywhere. Whereas if we can understand the risks and the scarier parts, but also understand where there are real exciting climate solutions that can help not just the environment, but also the economy, health, justice, security, everything we care about. That's why I get excited to work on climate. And uh, I feel like I'm optimistic enough to I, I'm anxious about other things, but that <laughs> I, I think I hold it together pretty well on. That's it's one of the things I do admire about you, Ethan, is you take what what can be a very polarizing and, and frightening topic to some. I mean, to some, it seems like this is an existential crisis. And yet you can you, you keep it to where a rational discussion can be had and, you know, concerns addressed without uh, without it coming down to that polarized either or you're either 100 percent for this or you're 100 percent for that. I suspect there were people all over the spectrum in terms of uh, what they see and, and, and how they would attribute, you know, climate change and the influences that, you know, for instance, man might have on, on accelerating climate change. Yeah, I, I was thinking about recently, and I can't believe I'm going <laughs> to say this publicly, but I um, obviously kind of the two extreme ends of the spectrum are climate doom and climate denial. And the truth lies somewhere in between there, and we know exactly where if we just read the science. But I was thinking about for myself as a climate reporter how both are serious problems to me as a professional, but personally, the doom I think gets to me in a weirder way because um, if someone denies climate change, they might look at me and say, oh, he's working on a problem that doesn't exist. And that's kind of funny to me. But if someone denies or if someone is expressing doom, then they're suggesting there is a problem and I'm just incapable of doing anything about it. And none of us are. And that's, to me, a kind of grim outlook and kind of makes you frustrated when it can be someone close to you in your life that feels that way. So I really hope that my work and the work of others in this space can shift us away from this doom talk and toward what the actual science is telling us. I think it makes it a lot easier to do our work and we can make a lot of progress. Ethan, sometimes when I hear talk of, of uh, climate uh, change or action or policy, you know, to address climate change, my first thought is, oh, crap. Where's my wallet? You know, and and how much more control are they going to call for over another aspect of my life? Now, again, that's that's one extreme, but I know there there are things that are being done to help mitigate man's impact on the environment. Talk to me about some of the more positive things that you're seeing that don't involve basically increasing government power over me or taking more money out out of my wallet. What's exciting now is. 
solar, wind, some of these cleaner energy technologies are reaching a point where they are cost competitive with other energy sources. Um, I believe 62% of clean energy at this point has, or solar and wind at this point has outcompeted fossil fuels to the point where it's cheaper to build that new solar wind infrastructure than to continue using fossil fuels. In the United States, there is only one coal plant out of hundreds where it is more economically efficient to continue using that coal plant as opposed to building new solar and wind farms. So that's an exciting place to be. And that means uh, when we talk about governments, obviously, there are a lot of options to increase regulation, but you can also look to deregulation and saying, how can we make this a freer market? Because in that freer market, solar and wind are going to do a heck of a job. Um, we've seen the cost of solar go down 85% in the last decade, offshore wind by 55%, batteries by 85%. So. There, there's so many solutions we could talk about, but that's just one example where you can see how deregulation in some aspects could actually help things out. I think that uh, there would be powerful incentive for the free market to, to pursue cleaner energy. And I'm including in that, you know, nuclear um, energy is, as part oh, of, of that. Um, but but first, we got to get a lot of that regulatory uh, straitjacket off of them to, to allow that kind of innovation to take place. Is, is there a likelihood that governments are going to turn loose of some of that power, or are they, they pretty determined to hang on to it? I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I think, again, there's many paths for how we can address climate change. There's not just one solution. What I feel is important is for everyone to bring their voice to the table and take it seriously. I think, again, talking about doom or denial, like that doesn't help. So if we can come and say, hey, this is a serious problem. Here's my idea for how to fix it. And the conversation can be about which solution will work best then maybe that is deregulation, maybe that's more regulation, maybe that's nothing to do with government and it's just incentivizing the right kind of innovation. But we need to have that conversation and not be stuck on whether or not the world is going to end on Thursday, because that doesn't get us anywhere. <laughs> Good point. Again, we are talking with Ethan Brown. He is a contributor for Young Voices and also the host of The Sweaty Penguin. Where can people find you? Where can they follow you on social media? You can find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts, as well as thesweatypenguin.com or pbs.org slash Promise. You can find me at EthanBrown5151 on Twitter, and you can find The Sweaty Penguin on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Welcome back to Moving Forward with, with Young Voices. Happy to uh, welcome Nitu Arnold to the program. Uh, Nitu is a fellow at the National Association of Scholars and a Young Voices contributor. And Nitu, I'm sure we probably left a few things off of uh, the, the list of things you do or uh, things that you're about. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. 
Sure. I mean, you got it right that I am a research fellow at the National Association of Scholars, and I work on a lot of higher education issues. I've typically come on your show to talk about college finances, especially the student debt issue. But this time I'm here to talk about a diversity, equity and inclusion course and the process and getting that information from Arizona State University as part of a larger project I'm working on for the NIS on journalism education. Well, I'm seeing a lot lately about diversity, equity and inclusion. And it's it's a very polarizing issue, to put it mildly. Um, tell me about what's going on at Arizona State University. How how does this fit into to their journalism program? Yes. So. Just to introduce people to DEI, if they don't know what that is already, it stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's essentially a euphemistic sounding set of ideals, which has really turned into loyalty oaths to to a progressive value system. And I would say it's anything but inclusive. If you're somebody who opposes these ideals, or you say that you support giving people equality, you you want people to have a fair opportunity, but you don't necessarily believe in forcing equal outcomes, then you might see yourself not having too many opportunities, especially in academia. And so that's what's become a very big issue. And how this relates to Arizona State University is that the Cronkite School of Journalism began offering, well, began forcing students to take a DEI journalism course. And this was in, mm. beginning in fall 2022. What makes the story even more interesting is the process in which I, I wanted to find out more about this course and what they were teaching. And there was a lot of stalling and obfuscation from ASU. So, yeah, I, I'm looking at, uh, at why more and more of these uh, college univer- or universities and, and colleges are, are requiring um, diversity statements, even from engineering students and medical students. And yeah. it seems like, okay, so there's an agenda that seems to be at f- afoot here. You looked into the, the um, syllabus. What, uh, what was it like getting the information about this, this course? It sounds like it was not just as simple as, may I see what you're actually teaching here? Right, and I would say long story short, Arizona State University said that they couldn't give me course materials for this DEI course because it was apparently a trade secret. So I had no idea that course materials, course syllabus is apparently um, top secret that nobody should know anything about. So here's the more in-depth story. So a couple of months ago, I filed a public information request to the university to obtain these documents. And for those who don't know, public information requests, they go by many names. Uh, it allows Americans to examine government documents anywhere from meeting minutes at a town council meeting to instructional materials for K through 12 students. Uh, and it's a really powerful tool to hold government institutions accountable. So back to the story, I filed this public information request and Arizona State tells me that they can't give this information to me electronically because it it was a trade secret and that it was copyright protected materials. So oh. yes, and that's actually a common reason you might see universities not giving Uh, course materials, but this is not a common practice everywhere. Uh, I filed 
uh, public information requests several times in many different states. And I, UNC Chapel Hill, the University of Wisconsin, they've given me course materials when I've asked for it. So it is possible to give this information. So normally my journey would have ended here because they said they couldn't send it to me by email. But I did anticipate being in the state for Christmas. So I asked if I could view the course materials in person. And they initially said, yes, I could. And we scheduled a time to meet in late December. And then that's when the excuses started to come in. So first they tried to get me to reschedule to a different day because there would be quote, a fire drill that could cause mm. a lot of confusion. Um, and I really did not want to move it to another day because I was already there for a limited amount of time. This was primarily for vacation. So I also didn't, you know, I just didn't have that much time. And I, I didn't want it to be the case that we try to reschedule and then it turns out we're, we're just having problems. And it's like, well, we, the university could say, well, we tried to accommodate you, but it looks like we're just not. We're, we're not able to find a day that works for both of us. So I made sure that I could go, I just had it rescheduled from the morning to the afternoon. Um, we're gonna come back to that fire drill in a little bit. So they tell me first, there's a fire drill. Then when I go on campus uh, to view these materials, I was only given one hour to uh, inspect the materials to take notes on it. This was not a stipulation that was discussed before. And I've actually encountered a similar situation in, at the University of Missouri. They also cite copyright protection as reasons to not give course syllabus via email, but people are allowed to inspect the materials on campus. And that's what I did several months ago. And within the nine to five workday, they did allow me an unlimited time to view the materials, which is why I was taken back by ASU's response. So I'm only given an hour to view everything. And then as I left the building, I noticed uh, uh, an employee that was stationed outside of the building. And I decided to ask about the fire drill because I was quite skeptical of it, but you never know. So I asked the employee if he was aware of any fire drill. And I should note that this employee had been stationed there all day and he was not aware of it. So interesting. Yeah. So that was my experience in trying to get this information. Okay. So need to talk to me about uh, what you were able to see. What, what's the reasoning behind having this in a school of journalism? Um, it, it sounds to me like, like this is about making sure that only people with correct attitudes and opinions are able to, to advance in these fields. I mean, am I overstating it by saying it that way? Not at all. I'd say it's about conditioning students to think a certain way, to approach stories from a very specific angle, the desired progressive perspective. And I actually don't think that's a good idea for journalism. You know, journalism should be about pursuing the truth. It should be about presenting the public um, objective information and context. And what I see a DEI course at journalism school specifically doing is that it is handicapping 
journalists ideologically before their careers even begin. Oh yeah. And so and and I also think it can serve as a filter. So if you're a more conservative minded student, maybe you disagree with DEI. Um, you know, you might be filtered out because it, the, the course is just not going to allow your opinions. And I think this is a much larger problem than just being at the university because it pretty much matches with the credibility problems we see in the media, um, specifically uh, journalists who exclude certain contextual information that could be very important to a story or focusing on a fringe case, which of course it might be true and it might be interesting, but it is not representative of the whole. And so it can mislead the public um, about their perceptions on certain issues. Wow. I am so glad that uh, that you are shining some light on this because uh, this this is a much bigger concern. And I'm just saying that as a consumer of of uh, you know media, this is a huge concern. If if we can't, I mean, we're already having trust issues with some of the some of the media. Um, this this would add to it. Need to. Where can people follow your work? Where can they find you? Yes, so I'm on Twitter at Neetu, N-E-E-T-U underscore Arnold. And I'm actually now on Instagram. You can also follow me there. Um, I post a lot of explainer kind of videos, something that I may not be able to post on Twitter. So you can follow, follow me on both those platforms. Thank you so much. Great to visit with you again. Yes, thank you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome uh, Corey Walker back to the program. Uh, Corey is a Young Voices Innovation Fellow as well as a graduate of the University of Michigan. Corey, good to catch up with you. Hi, thank you for having me. So, Chat GPT. I had not really heard a lot about this before just a, just a few months ago, but now I hear about it everywhere. Um, for people who are hearing chat GPT for the first time or who are, I've heard it too, but I have no idea what it is. How would you explain this to someone trying to get their mind around it? Well, I kind of feel like most people, I mean, most people probably know by now, um, if you've been paying attention to the world we live in, the artificial intelligence um, is playing a much more increasing role in American life. So I, I think that um, essentially chat GPT um, um, works as an artificial intelligence and the kind of like the dumbest way I can explain it is it, it's um, you give it instructions and it has a very sophisticated way uh, at least to us uh, normal folk of kind of like executing uh, those instructions so you can tell it to write an essay about um, the great Gatsby and it will be able to write you a five paragraph essay on the, the great Gatsby for example um, you can ask it is something as sophisticated as you know write a monologue in the tone and style of, for example, Tucker Carlson. And it could do that for you as well. It could translate that for you in text. Um, and we've also seen other companies, whether it's Microsoft um, or now Elon Musk, try to get on, get in on their own artificial intelligence uh, generation schemes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that ChatGPT is playing a much more increasing role in American life. Um, we've seen universities and schools have to uh, react to students now using it um, to to do things like write essays and do assignments for them. Um, and I mean, I think it was even sophisticated enough to where I was able to pass a Wharton uh, business school exam to get a B. 
Now, I'm not really sure what that says about ChatGPT. I think perhaps it just means <laughs> our maybe our education system is a little um, little softer than what we thought it was. Um, but it's um, yeah, but it's a very fascinating technology. Now, of course, anytime there's an advance like this, there's always concerns that, well, could this be used for evil purposes? And one of the first things I heard was actually a college professor saying, is this going to make it easier for, for instance, for students to, to cheat, have chat GPT, write my essay on a given subject and essentially do the work for them? I mean, is, is that a concern that you've heard expressed? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a concern earlier. Um, and I think maybe a lot of people were so reactionary, right? Um this isn't the first time there have been new technologies introduced to the classroom, right? Like there's um, a moral panic over calculators when that became a thing. And then it's eventually we just said, okay, we're gonna give everyone a calculator. It's gonna be an expectation, you're gonna learn how to use it. Um, same thing with certain things like spark notes and people using, you know, reading uh, text, uh, not through the primary source, but, you know, using things like spark notes or mm-hmm. um, other, materials to get the abbreviated version. Um, so ChatGPT is just kind of like the, the next iteration of that. Um, there's been some panics, I but the reality is, is that, you know, um, there have been many, many people who've written their essays with ChatGPT and gotten pretty poor grades because uh, ChatGPT doesn't necessarily give you accuracy, right? It can give you a very compelling, beautiful sounding piece of work, a piece of prose. However, it may not be factually true. So the thing is, if you're just a lazy student and just want to use ChatGPT to do your work for you, it's a good chance you may fail. Wow. Well, you point out in your article that, uh, you know, the one thing it can't substitute for is an actual thinking human being. It can do a pretty good job of regurgitating information, you know, in a, in a plausible form, but it, it can't take the place of a human, which to me assuages some of the, the concerns people have that this thing's going to get self-aware and, you know, go Skynet on us. Well, you know, I actually wrote another piece about this where, um, we, we discuss this in further length, but the reality is artificial intelligence just isn't in a position to where it is sophisticated enough to take the job of a thinking human being yet. Um, there's actually some really good TikToks of people showing, like um, going to like drive-throughs for restaurants and trying to do automation, very simple restaurant, you know, kind of get like um, very simple orders, kind of get a large order of fries and then it gives you a milkshake instead. Mm. Um, and people frustrating frustratingly sitting in line for like 15 minutes trying to get the order correct, and then they give up and just drive away. Um, and I think that shows you that all the technology is very sophisticated, it is very um, impressive. It just isn't at the place right now to where people have to worry about it taking our jobs. Um, and on top of that, there's a, the extra added dimension of the fact that, you know, even if artificial intelligence does get there, um, there's always going, there's going to be, there's a predicted, um, there's, we're predicting that there could be more jobs, you know, even created, um, that human beings can actually be able to take advantage of, um, when artificial intelligence does get to that place to where it's taking the mundane jobs. So, um, I think a lot of people are kind of worried, but I think that, you know, perhaps it could be liberating, quite frankly, if a lot of these really mundane jobs, I mean, quite frankly, who wants to work at McDonald's? Like, I'm, I'm sorry, let's just be honest here. I don't think anyone wakes up every day like, oh, my God, I, I look forward to going to like flipping burgers, uh, not to disparage or to or to diminish their work. Cause I know they work very hard, but it's just not something that I think 
people would be crying if they had to give up. Um, but there are other jobs out there that will be more um, intellectually intensive and I think, quite frankly, more rewarding for people and could honestly um, you know, be even uh, more lucrative uh, given that these will be jobs in new industries that um, you know, people will be breaking into that don't necessarily have um, you know, seniors that have been doing it for like much longer that you have to compete with. So I'm actually really excited for how artificial intelligence can impact the labor market. I don't think it will be as um, much of a doomsday as other people are projecting it to be. Well, I appreciate your optimism too. And I, I've been through the whole cycle of, well, are the, you know, is artificial intelligence and robots, are they going to take our jobs to understanding that uh, any jobs they do take over, entry level work, mundane, repetitive kind of work, frees us up to pursue other jobs. And, and we don't even know what some of those jobs may be. I mean, they, they'll, they'll be invented, I guess, as, as we go. You're completely right. And so I think that you have to take like a very like open-minded approach to this and you know you're never going to stop technology right like i don't care what tucker carlson says you're not stopping technology you can't you just can't do it there have been attempts before um we know how this goes um the genie's out of the box we just have to figure out a way to adapt to new reality um and you know also embrace the beautiful things that new technologies can give to us um, because i do think that artificial intelligence can be used for really great things in society if we make the right decisions uh, make the right make the right decisions about it but you know unfortunately I don't have I just don't have faith in our government to do that but I do think that the technology itself you know isn't necessarily evil um, it's about what you do with it no, I, I agree. And I, I appreciate in your article, too, where you talk about how, look, this may be a very smooth talking, smart sounding machine, but really, you scratch the surface and you find out it has its flaws. It's not this is not a um, yeah, it's not it's not taking things over, not by a long shot. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, I think it was Wired that tried to replace their place their writing staff or a good chunk of their writing staff with ChatGPT. So having ChatGPT write a lot of their articles, and what they figured out was was that oh, it's just like making a lot of things up, and a lot of these things are wrong, and it's quite frankly just kind of embarrassing for us. Um, and so they actually had to go back and admit that yes this stuff was you know done with automated intelligence um and it was wrong and they had to go back and correct it so it shows that um it just isn't at the place yet to where we can just you know replace entire writing staffs entire um restaurant staffs uh you know with with these sort of like algorithms but um could that day get here it's possible but we're just not close to that yet Okay. Again, we are talking with Corey Walker. He is a Young Voices Innovation Fellow and graduate of the University of Michigan. Corey, for people who want to follow up and see more of your work, where can they find you? Yeah, definitely. Um, you can follow me um, on Instagram at uh, Corey, um, at Corey.Walker. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically where you'll find my musings. Okay. Thank you very much. I hope we talk again soon. Yeah, for sure. Thank you.
Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Charlie Brandt to the program. Charlie, for those who are meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. My name is Charlie. I'm a second year law student at the George Washington University Law School, and I'm predominantly interested in uh, First Amendment law and separation of powers. Um, so that's federalism, checks and balances on the sort. Well, I'm looking at an article you penned for the uh, Orange County Register. Kids have First Amendment rights, too. They shouldn't be banned from social media. And, Charlie, I'm concerned because I have been seeing headlines here of late of various uh, legislators at the federal as well as at the local levels talking about, you know, we need to make sure that kids can't get on TikTok or, you know, whatever uh, social media. I'm sure there are good intentions at work here, but talk to me about the problem. What exactly are they trying to address when they talk about banning kids from social media? So there seems to be two central aims of those interested in banning children from social media. You have mental health considerations on the one hand, this notion that social media is a sort of mental poison that is depriving kids of sense of self-worth. Now, there is evidence to suggest that excessive use of social media does increase incidence of depression, especially among youths. Um, so let's set that aside for a moment. The other justification has to do with exploitation. Um, and it, it, it's, it's somewhat nebulous to what these legislators are referring, whether it's um, children are vulnerable to exploitation online or kids are being actively exploited by big businesses and social media companies online. It's somewhat unclear. Um, but I'm sure if Congress were to enact any legislation on this front, though I doubt that is likely at this time, it would assemble a large finding of fact that would steer the court in evaluating the constitutionality of any ban uh, uh, from minors using social media. Wow. I mean, on the one hand, and, and part of this is because I, you know, I, I have uh, young kids in their early teens. And I do think that social media has an impact. Now the bigger question becomes, but do, do I think it has enough impact that I want government to step in and be the arbiter of who should and who shouldn't be on social media? Because I don't think I want to go there. I couldn't agree with you more. The basic flaw uh, in this proposal is that the... Uh, congressmen are acting as if children are not entitled to First Amendment liberties. We have known, at least since 1969, when the Supreme Court handed, handed down the famous case, Tinker versus Des Moines Independent School District, that children are entitled to at least a large measure of First Amendment protection. In that case, two, uh, two children, I believe it was, uh, were disciplined for wearing black armbands in protest of the Vietnam War. They did so in a in a peace in a peaceful manner. They did not disrupt uh, the school in any way, shape, or form, and they were disciplined nonetheless. And the Supreme Court said, "No, you can't do that. They're not disrupting the school day. They're merely expressing themselves." So we've known at least since then that children are entitled to First Amendment liberties. Well, according to Josh Hawley, you know that that's 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 no concern um, that a ban on social media. Uh, would be totally lawful. I mean, the, the senator really evinces no constitutional qualms with his proposal, despite the fact that I'm sure he knows better. He was former attorney general of Missouri. Um, so he's a learned legal mind and likely knows all too well uh, the legal uh, challenges likely to arise 
if his proposal were enacted into law. So I, I'm curious, where do we come, um, where do we arrive at the, at the, the consensus of where uh, a young person may exercise their rights more fully? It seems like age 18 is where we're like, okay, you're old enough to contract, you know, to, to agree to sign your name and be held responsible for things that you weren't when you were younger. Um, I agree with you that First Amendment rights probably kick in much earlier than that. Do we withhold full exercise of some of those rights until, you know, such age as they would be considered, you know, legally able to make those decisions for themselves. And I'm, I'm not asking for any particular number, but just wondering, um, what are your thoughts on, on how, how a society can make a, a reasonable arrival at, at what would be appropriate versus what wouldn't? Absolutely. So there's political rights and there's natural rights. So voting, for instance, is a political right. And so age restrictions make more sense. But speech is, in my view, and the view of the founding fathers, a natural right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something we're born with and that no government ought to be able to take away. Following that line of reasoning, it would appear to me that children are entitled to First Amendment protection in, a, in, in pretty much the fullest sense. Um, now, let me be clear here. Obscenity, uh, which includes child pornography, is not constitutionally protected. It never has been constitutionally protected. Going back to, to uh, 1781 when the Bill of Rights was ratified, or 1791, excuse me, I believe it was, um, obscenity was understood to not be protected speech. Fighting words are not protected speech. Um, threats, true threats are not protected speech. But beyond these categories, the Supreme Court has been extremely reluctant to, to um, uh, uh, recognize new uh, exceptions to First Amendment liberties. Okay. I, I appreciate your take on that. Um, talk to me about uh, where where should the primary responsibility reside when it comes to decisions about kids being on social media? My default, and maybe this is knee-jerk, is, is, hey, parents should be the first in line to be making those kinds of decisions. Uh, is it parents who should be telling Congress or perhaps even their state legislatures to, hey, please get back in your lane? I, I think you're exactly right. Parents and guardians are where this power resides. Parents, of course, have the power to yank their kids off of social media and punish them if they use it. Uh, what I'm simply saying is that the federal government should not have this coercive power to force parents to make that decision. The decision should stay in the household. And if any government is to address an issue like this, um, you know, family dynamics, child safety, it's generally to be had at the state and local levels, not the federal level. Uh, indeed, our federal government is, is one of enumerated powers. Um, so uh, it, it's not entirely clear pursuant to what power Senator Hawley even imagines enacting the statute, though it's likely the Commerce Clause because that's been blown up over the years to become kind of a naked police power <laughs> pursuant to which the federal government can regulate basically whatever it wants with some minor limitations. Very true. Um, but I would I would assert that your intuition is 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 correct that that parents and guardians have the principal uh, responsibility for the safety of their children, even when it comes to the internet. Um, I, I, I got to tell you, the longer I live, and maybe it's the more I become aware of of uh, what so the impact that social media has, the more leery I become of it. Um, and and I don't know if you've seen like the social dilemma or uh, some of the shows that that kind of show how 
it becomes uh, it can become very addictive in some ways. We get we get the need for that dopamine fix. Who has liked what I've shared here or whatever? And I, I could see kids being particularly susceptible to it. Now, short of calling for government to get involved, are there are there things that social media companies could or should be doing that would uh, that would encourage more responsible use? Yeah, I think a lot of parents find parental controls. Uh, you know, unsuitable for, for use. Like, I I don't think they understand them very well. Um, so I think, uh, more effective parental controls might be the right way to encourage safety on the one hand, but, uh, the practice of fundamental liberties on the other. Um, I can't really speak to parental controls. I'm no expert on it, but what I can say is that it seems that parents themselves don't know how to use them. Um, Josh Hawley admitted as much on an interview with Hannity that, um, you know, he he wasn't too confident in his own or parents' ability to use parental controls because, as he put it, kids know technology better than their parents do. Um, well, that may be. Um, but one thing the courts will ask if something like this is ever enacted is, are there more narrowly tailored means by which Congress could fulfill a similar objective or the same objective, rather? And I think in this particular instance, you're right that there is, and parental controls are likely one of them. How that specifically would play out, I can't say, but I do think there is something in parental controls that offers us a solution. Well, and now now the next thing we've got to do is is work on helping the general public understand that just because there's a concern doesn't mean that there needs to be a law. Um, we've got to get in the habit of solving these problems at the lowest possible level, starting with, you know, in the home, and and then you know going outward from there. But um, I, I appreciate you taking on what could be a, a very difficult and polarizing topic. I think you you've hit on some very reasonable solutions. And above all, um, don't look to government first and foremost as as the one to come in in there and solve it for you. Because however they solve it it's going to create some some unintended consequences that will come along with it. Again, we're talking with uh, Charlie Brandt. Charlie, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they find more of your work? Uh, you can find me at uh, uh, charliebrant44 on Twitter, and you can also find me on my Young uh, Voices webpage. Okay, and we will actually have a link in the show notes uh, that will take them uh, to this article that we were citing from the OC Register. Really appreciate you visiting with me. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you and your listeners have a wonderful day as well.